0: It is sometimes referred to as the Great Love Chapter, which I said I would assume must be the must be at the heart of everything we have addressed today. The Beatles said, "All you need is love," and then they broke up. This is perhaps one of the most well-known passages uh, in all of the Bible. It is often read at weddings. Um, even at weddings of those who have absolutely no regard or understanding of who God is or who Christ is, it's just the words sound pretty. They It exalts love. And so even those who have no regard for the scriptures or the God who inspired them will have those words enshrined in their wedding ceremonies. Maybe you, yourself, had the words of 1 Corinthians um, read at your wedding if you are married. One of the things, though, I think I, I want to make sure we understand is that the love that Paul is talking about in this passage of text is not romantic love. It is not about a love based on commonality, but it is a love based on difference. When man and a woman get married, they are getting married because we have so much in common. You complete me. I want to be with you. I don't ever want to be separated from you. I like you. I love you. The Roman or 1 Corinthians chapter 13 contains no mere sentimentality, but rather it is the pursuit of love in the presence of difference. It is the pursuit of love in the presence of dissent. Paul is not seeking to remove differences, but Love in the presence of our differences. This is, this is where Paul is going. So let me give you just a little bit of context so that we're, we're all together as we work forward in this passage. I want to remind you that this passage does not stand alone. Actually, it holds chapter 12 and chapter 14 together. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 are about the the use of spiritual gifts in the church body as the church gathers together. And chapter 13, this um, topic of love holds those two chapters together. Somebody described it as an Oreo. It is that delicious, creamy center that holds the two halves together. If that's helpful, good. If not... Or if it makes you crave dessert. <laughs> it is, it is, and Paul is addressing spiritual gifts and particularly the Corinthians exaltation of the more quote, prominent gifts, especially the use of speaking in tongues. The Corinthians reinforced division. They were a very stratified church. They are a hierarchical church. We saw this earlier in chapter 11, how they had um, struck their, their church based on wealth, that the wealthy would um, and the privileged would have uh, their communion first and the poor would be um, kind of relegated to the courtyard. And if there was anything left over, then they might, or they would at least get a, a lower grade of food, and a less um, premier wine. We've seen this all the way through 1 Corinthians. There is this stratification, there is this sense of ego and pride that I am just a little bit better than you, or perhaps I'm quite a bit better than you. So that is happening then in their worship services. They would come together and they exalted certain spiritual gifts, especially those that were the more spectacular, as though those people were more spiritual and those who had gifts that were maybe not as prominent or hidden that people didn't see, well, maybe those aren't quite as as important. And Paul then describes the church as a body and he says basically the, the whole body is important. Every part of the body functions together is it is interdependent and yeah sometimes we might give more attention to the eyes or something like that but if the whole body were an eye well that would be kind of grotesque so paul gives this body metaphor to talk about how the church should function together and that some parts may not be as prominent but they are really important paul has celebrated that god has created a diverse body. And these differences can only be held together when love is central. Because we are different people and we tend to exalt our abilities or ourselves, only love can keep a body together. And so, what Paul has done, I want to take you back up to chapter 12, verse thirty. Um, so he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. We talked a little bit about that last week. And I will show you a still more excellent way. A more excellent way. The idea there behind excellent is, um, is conveyed maybe by the words beyond measurement. Um, They had been measuring their lives and the lives of others by their wisdom or by their freedom or by their sacrifice or by their rigor or by their wealth or by their giftings. And Paul is saying, no, I'm going to show you a way that is beyond measuring. I will show you a way that cannot be measured. That is the more excellent way. And so with that, if you will... Follow along with me as I read um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'll just read the entire chapter. Listen to the word of the living God. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, then I shall be fully known, even as I have been known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So I want to begin here uh, with the primacy of love. And first of all, just to introduce our, our... this first part, Um, I think most of us, I would hope that all of us would would agree that love, however we understand it, is necessary, that it is the mere add-on to the human life, but rather we might even say that love is the essence of what it means to be human. And I think we would probably all agree that the love as described in the Bible and love as defined by society are two disparate things. They are far apart. There is a vast chasm between biblical love and what society informs us is love. So we want to make that, that notice. See, God is the origin, origin and model of love. Perhaps one of is that God is love, and he is the source of love. He then defines love, whatever love is. We, we should always go to the source. If you want the most accurate information, right, go to the source. God is the source of love. We should access what he says about love to discover what love truly is, as he is the source and the origin of it. Perhaps we see love most clearly displayed in another very popular verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. In this way, God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. How did God love? He loved by giving his only begotten son. So that, for a purpose, it just didn't give him some, well, I'm just going to do this, this will be kind of cool so that the ones who believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Paul focuses on believers and what the church and the world would look at like without love. So, so today we want to consider a biblical understanding of love, which is certainly spelled out very, very well in this chapter. So let me make a a feeble attempt or a feeble stab at defining love. There's probably a zillion ways to do this, um, but I'll make some attempt. However we're going to define love, the picture of Christ's death for sinners is the most important. However we're going to define it, Christ and his work at Calvary needs to be at the center of that definition. That is, his death, listen to this, his death was for those who offered him no benefit. He, listen, Romans 5, eight. but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In First John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, which is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so Christ died, gave himself, expressed the ultimate expression of love for people who offered him no benefit. Your being a Christian does not improve Jesus. He did not become better or more fulfilled or more satisfied or more complete When you became a Christian, he was already thoroughly and utterly sufficient in and of himself. I'm not saying that to demean you. I'm saying that to show us the depth and the height and the riches of God's love for a people such as us. That while we were still sinners, when did Christ die? Not once you got yourself all cleaned up and looked good and offered him something. No. While well, we were, like the song says, wretched. It is love, then, we would often define as seeking the best for others. An emotion that issues forth an action that benefits another. Love is other-centered. So, Paul begins in these first three verses and I'm going to step back a little from these three verses and um, look at these three broad categories because Paul talks about speaking, having, and doing. So let's begin with Paul speaking or to say, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, you're going to see the same formula through all of these three things. If I say that I have love, If I have the most eloquent speech. And so Paul now is beginning with the most divisive issue that that he's, he's addressing in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was this issue of speaking in tongues or in other languages. And Paul says, even if I have tongues, even if I speak in tongues, you recall in chapter 12, the tongues were last on his list of spiritual gifts, but it is first on his list in correcting the people. Paul begins with the most divisive issue. The Corinthians, you need to remember, the Corinthians regarded the gift of speech they regarded it highly. In fact, rhetoric would have been one of the premier skills that a person could obtain. The gift of rhetoric, that is the gift of arguing, the gift of convincing, convincing speech. You'll remember, Paul gets accused oftentimes, especially in the second letter to the Corinthians, that they look down upon Paul because he was not a great orator. He was not a great speaker. Oh, Paul. He sounds so impressive in his letters, but when he comes, he does, he's not all that great. Paul is not a great speaker. Oh, we need men who can amaze us with their oratory abilities. This was a huge issue in Corinth. They were accustomed to being mesmerized by captivating speech. Paul says, if I even speak in the most eloquent tongues of men, and do not have love, I am nothing. But he goes on and he says, even if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. One of the questions that often arises from this is that, is there a heavenly language? Is there an angelic language? And I I think I would suggest no, or at least that's not what Paul is arguing here. And I would say the immediate context does not support this idea of a heavenly dialect. Why? Paul, it seems obvious that Paul is using hyperbola because he uses hyperbola. If I have all knowledge, that's hyperbola, and all faith, that's hyperbola, it should not surprise us then that Paul is using this, um, this same hyperbola in, in this particular area. So the immediate context does not support the idea that there is some sort of heavenly language. And the remote context says nothing. In other words, if I were to look further on before this passage or after this passage or into all of everything that Paul has written or everything that the apostles have written or into everything that is written in the entire Bible, there is no mention of any type of heavenly language. It is absent. I find it difficult to establish a theological position on something that is not supported, that has, is really just not mentioned anywhere in scripture, except in a place where it is obviously hyperbola. So then I would also argue, even if it did exist, I don't know, maybe angels do have their own language, but I would argue then that it is a language. It is not undecipherable putting together of syllables that make no sense, an inco- incoherent, meaningless sounds. Paul, the point here is Paul is saying there is no conceivable al- language that eliminates the need for love for the saints. There is no language that I can even think of that eliminates the need of love for my brothers and sisters. So even if I speak in these the most eloquent way possible, but I have not love, I'm just noise. And so Paul then goes on to his next statement. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. What does he say? He says, then I'm just noise. There might be a cultural reference here to pagan worship because... um, he says, I'm a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. And sometimes pagan worships, they would have these um, pots or whatever and they would hit them and they would clang and they would bang and they would make a noise. And perhaps there is that reference. And, and if so, then he's saying that words without actions are as useless as idol worship. But I think basically it is just simply saying that if I speak even the most if I'm the most gifted rhetorician that has ever graced the earth and I do not have love, then I am just a noisy gong. Anybody ever been to a cymbal solo? <laughs> right? You don't go. Cause it's noise. Symbols are great. And I love how what, what he says here. He says, I am just a noisy gong. He doesn't say my speech is a noisy is just noisy gong. He says, I am in my essence. This is who I am. It's not just my speech, but tongues without love diminish my value that I am not what I have been created to be. So, Paul is setting the stage. If I speak. So these are um, conditional phrases. If this were to happen. He's not saying it is happening. He's just saying this is a conditional statement. If this were to happen without love, then I have... I am not who I was created to be. And then he goes on and he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And so now we go into, what does Paul have? Again, a conditional phrase. If I were to have everything. And you'll notice that these are... um, some of the, these include some of the spiritual gifts that Paul had addressed earlier. If I have great supernatural power, if I have the ability to understand the, the secrets of the universe, if I have wisdom that can make sense of all of the deep mysteries, and if I have faith that could even say to this mountain be moved and cast into the sea, even if I can do that and do not have love, I am nothing and so now Paul is taking aim at their sacred other more of their sacred cows. In this day and age in the first century secret knowledge knowledge especially secret knowledge secret information was of great value there was a a group or a a, a sect a movement that probably wasn't in full force at this time but we certainly see its uh its seeds or its formation. It was a group called Gnosticism, or Gnostics. And so the word Gnostic comes from the word Gnosis, Greek, which means know, to know something. And these Gnostics would claim to have secret knowledge. We have the secret information of the universe. And for a nominal fee, I will be happy to dispense some of that secret knowledge to you. But I have this secret wisdom. I have this secret knowledge. It has been given to me by my great and vast discoveries. Paul is saying, even if I have all of that, if I can understand all wisdom, I can understand the mysteries of the universe, and if i have the supernatural ability to make prophetic utterances they are empty without love supernatural gifts without love for the saints it does not matter how many gifts of the spirit a person may possess only love can understand the wisdom of the cross only Fellowship with God does not require, and by the way, fellowship with God does not require knowing all there is to know. You can know Christ without knowing all the secrets of the universe. But have not love. I am nothing. I may claim great possessions. But I actually possess nothing, and I am therefore nothing. This is Paul's argument. He goes on, and he says, Even if I do amazing things, if I act in ways that are awesome, self-sacrifice, look at this. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Self-sacrifice. I give up all of my possessions. Everything I have. I give away everything. Feeding the poor is not enough. It must be motivated by love for the poor, which originates in love for Christ, who has identified himself with the poor. It is in vogue today. It is certainly popular today that um, businesses are... um, philanthropic, right? So if you're going to start a business, you have to find some sort of cause to be generous to. So a proceed of everything that I sell is going to go to refugees or a proceed of everything I do is going to give, or if you buy a pair of my widgets, I'll give a a set of widgets to a poor country or a a person in a poor country. I'm not here to discern their motives. I'm convinced that many people do so out of a great concern for those who are in need. But call me a cynic. I would assume that many are not concerned about anything other than marketing. Are they generous? Absolutely. Do they love? Not so sure. If I have all of these things, even I give my body in sacrifice, but do not love. If I give away all of my possessions, this was a big deal, especially in the early church, all of the monks in the 3rd third, third and 4th century, all of the desert monks. Their big issue was, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And so they would do it. They'd give away all that they had they'd go live out in the desert by themselves. But have not love. that became an issue. If I'm living in the desert by myself, then who do I love? Love demands an object. I've given away everything, but I have nobody to love. This is where Paul is going. Even if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain Nothing. So he goes from I am nothing to I profit nothing. So Let me give you a a brief summary of these first few verses. Uh, Spiritual gifts minus love equals nothing. There's our formula for all of you math people. Extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit are not, and let me just remind you, Extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit are not evidence of the regenerating work of the Spirit. Consider Judas. Here was a man who performed amazing things and his heart had never been changed. Balaam was a prophet who prophesied accurately but was an enemy of God. And those who claim a miraculous ability in Matthew chapter 7, Christ denies and commands that they depart from him. The love of which Paul is speaking is a love that is first experienced in regeneration. It is, it is a love that enables us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then our neighbor as ourselves. So this is how Paul introduces this chapter for this section on divine love, he then goes on to um, share with us some of the characteristics of love, and this is where this is the part where we all like. This is where the the wedding ceremony gets gets good because love is patient and kind. And all right, just a quick warning: it's a grammar warning. I don't apologize for grammar anymore, but. This is just. I like to alert you. It says things like "love is patient and kind." um, Those sound like adjectives. Love's a a noun there, and those those descriptors, "kind" and "patience," and all that sounds like adjectives. They're not. They're verbs. Um, Which is really interesting to me. I hope it is to you. In other words, love acts. Love does something. We, Paul is not just describing attributes of love. He is saying, this is what love does. These, are, these acts are applicable then to all human beings, and they are specifically called for for the saints, the people of God. These are actions that God has called us to. These are what love does, not what love is. So, for instance, we might say, the first part there says love is patient. We might say something like this. Love waits patiently. Love acts kindly. Each of these actions, by the way, are lacking in the Corinthian church. So this is not so much a hymn of love, but a subtle rebuke of all that is rotten within the Corinthian church. So let's look at some of these and I'm going to kind of go through them relatively quickly. I won't spend a lot of time on them, but they are significant. Um, love is patient. That is, love waits. And we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, how Paul says that he is, that the believer patiently endures suffering. They endure wrong. We are exhorted to be patient. First Thessalonians chapter five verse fourteen. This is great. Paul says this. He goes on. He says, um, "And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all." Oh, we might say, "Oh, good! I, I'm going to admonish somebody. I'm going to get in their face. I'm going to give them what for." With patience patience towards all of them this caps off those exhortations it is considered by paul to be a mark of his discipleship second corinthians chapter 12:12 12, 12, paul writes this the sign of a true apostle's, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience With signs and wonders and mighty works. We love to focus on the signs and the wonders and the mighty works as that, as a mark of the apostles. But Paul begins all of that. The mark of his apostleship is with all patience. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 10. Paul also highlights this idea of patience. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that has happened to me. So patience then is this... Um, it's no surprise then that Paul puts... Love acting patiently first, because this seems to be very central, even in his ministry. But love also acts kindly. Ephesians 4, uh, in other words, um, well, Ephesians 4:32 let me just turn there. see if I can find it. Ephesians 4:32 goes like this: "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you. Kindness has been shown to you in Christ, so be kind to one another. It recognizes that every one of us carry a heavy load. And today where there are massive staffing shortages and our food doesn't come as fast and things are out of stock on the shelves, be kind to those who are working. And I'm speaking to myself because it also means that I need to be kind to the people at tech support who drive me up a wall. I want to tell them how right I am. When we were coming home from Nashville last year, our flights got delayed. So a simple three-hour flight turned into, I don't know, 14-hour flight. So we got to the airport much earlier than we had anticipated. And our flights were canceled and we're trying to rebook. And the young lady who was helping us, she was doing her best. She did a nice job. And I wanted to be frustrated with her. Don't you know I paid for my ticket? Don't you know that I should be on a flight right now? Well, not even right now, but I should be on a flight. Before I went off, Lord, check me. Be kind. Be kind. She's helping you. She's carrying a load. This is the beginning of her day. She has a rotten day in front of her. Her day is not going to get any better. Be kind to her. And I was so glad that I, she did not deserve anybody's wrath or ire or anger, let alone mine, As somebody who says, I follow Christ, be kind. She's carrying a heavy load. Many people are carrying a heavy load. Be kind to one another. Love does not display envy. It is not envious. It does not boast. The divisive atmosphere of the Corinthian church likely fostered envy toward one of those with the more prominent gifts. So, those who had the really prominent gifts, it's like, well, I don't have that. i kind of wish I did, and now I'm envious and jealous of them. In other words, we are not displeased with the success of others. Somebody else gets a raise, and I don't. Love does not speak boastfully. Literally, bo- love is not a windbag. So, that is, we heap praise upon ourselves, but let me add, we heap praise upon ourselves by downgrading others. Love does not act in such a manner. Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogance was certainly one of the prime uh, or central or particular faults of the Corinthians. Love is constructive. Rude is being indecent. It probably has sexual overtones, but generally it just refers to shameful behavior. Love does not act. in arrogance, and love does not act indecently. Love does not seek its own. Romans 15. Three, Paul writes this, he says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached me fell on me. Philippians 2, 4, Paul talks about have this mind, this attitude in you that was in Christ who had everything but became nothing on your, for your sake. Love does not seek its own way but rather seeks the good of others. Love does not display Irritability. In other words, to be irritated, it does not go into fits of anger, nor does it provoke others to anger. Uh, I think that's important. You might be able to control yourself, but many people are really good at pushing other people's buttons. Really good. (laughs) So, many, many years ago, when I was just a lad, I used to play ice hockey. I still love ice hockey. It wasn't all that good. still liked it. And and some of you who are into sports or follow sports, you know that there are people on certain teams and their job is to pester the other side. That's their job. And we would see it all the time in ice hockey. There would be somebody and we'd have guys on our team and they would just needle somebody on the other team and eventually that person would retaliate and guess who got the penalty? The person who retaliated, not the pestering one. We have those people in church, not, we have people who pester us. They just, they know the buttons. Folk, parents, right? Your kids know the buttons. Kids, your parents know your buttons too. And we know how to press them. But love doesn't press the buttons. It doesn't act irritably and it doesn't provoke it in others. Love does not keep records of wrongs. That is, this is indicating a desire to pay back. Just as God does not count our sins against us, so we do not keep records of those who have sinned against us. Jesus said, very famously, If your brother sins against you and repents, forgive him 70 times 7. This does not mean we count to 490 well, I mean, you're at three, so you got 487 to go. But I'm keeping track. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, forgive to the infinite, the ultimate degree. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you, how many times have you gone to God with the exact same thing over and over again and say, "I can't believe I did this again." I can't believe that I have fallen short. I can't believe that I have offended a holy God again in the exact same way. My son, my daughter, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice covers it all. You're forgiven. Okay. This is how we forgive others. Love absorbs evil without calculating how to retaliate. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In other words, we do not laugh or celebrate with sin. And this is becoming more and more of a temptation for uh, the church and for the people of God as we want to be, quote, accepted by culture that we will celebrate with them in their depravity. Because if they, like me, then maybe they'll listen to my message. So what I'll do is I'll celebrate with them in their wickedness so that they will like me and that I can build a relationship with them and then I can spring on them the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ and they'll be, oh, you're such a relevant contemporary individual. Of course your message has meaning to me. I'm not saying that we should not seek to contextualize our message but we do not celebrate with wickedness we do not laugh at it this was one of the issues going on in the Corinthian church was that a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law and Paul is saying no and you guys are all happy about it like look how contemporary we are look how loving we are and Paul's like no kick him out Not only does love not rejoice at wrongdoing love rejoices in the truth. We do not rejoice when those we love stumble and fall into evil, but we rejoice in the truth God's word is Jesus himself said, "Your word, God is truth so we do we are not to be ashamed of what God has said, so when God has said that there is salvation in no other name under heaven except through Jesus Christ. We do not shy away and think, oh, well, that's just not going to make me very welcome amongst my friends or my neighbors or in my social media groups or what have you. We rejoice in the truth. And when men and women tell the truth, even if it's unpopular, we rejoice in the truth. Love never ends. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never tires of support. Love never loses faith. Love never exhausts hope. Love never gives up. Hope refers to the Christian hope of the eternal blessings and future resurrection. It believes all things, not in a gullible sense, but believes what God has said. And love holds on even in trouble and affliction. I see, especially as people older in life or or even younger in life, and they are with a spouse or a parent who is just not able, especially a spouse, they, maybe through an accident or through and injury are not the same, and the spouse continues to dote and love and find that person just utterly and completely sufficient, and I'm just floored. What love. We see, one of our professors, Dr. Haney, who retired yesterday, his wife has MS, and she's getting worse and worse, and just to watch him dote on her and to love her, just is so awesome, just so awesome. Love holds on, even in trouble and affliction. So a quick summary. This list describes what love must do and what love must not do. In other words, the spirit-filled person, then, is not so much the one who displays spectacular gifts, but the one who acts with divine love. We go on. The permanence of love. Love never ends. I'll be fairly brief here. You know what that means, right? <laughs> here Paul contrasts the transitory nature of spiritual gifts with the abiding nature of love. Paul is not diminishing the value of spiritual gifts. He simply notes that they are temporary. They are imperfect and they will come to an end. However great they may be, they are not permanent. And so Paul... Puts forth an encouragement to progress towards maturity. And he uses two metaphors. First, as a child, as a child um, is preoccupied with themselves, they must grow beyond mature, immaturity and display divine love that has others as a priority. Children are, well, self centered. A mark of a mature person is self giving. Paul is using that as an example. These spiritual gifts are not given to point to ourselves, but to serve others. Then Paul talks about seeing in a mirror dimly. Today we have a glimpse of the heavenly realities, but when Christ returns, we will see things clearly. Love never fails. Literally, it says love never falls. It never ceases to exist. Even in the eternal state, love will continue. This is why Paul gives it its priority. It's because it's permanent. And then he closes out this chapter with, So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. These three things are of central value to the church and form a summary of the life of the church. We see this in 1 Thessalonians. Um, Paul talks about this. He says, We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that same phrasing in Colossians one four, Hebrews ten twenty two through 24, 1 Peter one twenty one and twenty two, faith and hope and love as being that which is of central value to a church and forms a summary of the life of a church. Faith sustains us presently through confidence in the finished work of Christ. Hope holds to a time when Christ returns and love is the fountain from which all of God's blessings flow. Faith will one day be sight, hope will be fulfilled, and love will continue because love never fails. I'll conclude here. a number of things to say about <clears throat> about this, but let me conclude with this love it is most perfectly seen in the cross Christ Christ acts for the good of those. Whom actually benefit him nothing. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that Christ absorbed our sins and he then gives to us his righteousness so that we have no sin and we become the righteousness of God so we stand blameless and righteous before a holy God. Why? Because of Christ's love for us. The book of Romans tells us that all have sinned. That means you, me, everybody, all have sinned, and that sin separates us separates us from God for eternity. All have sinned. Here's the good news. Christ died for sinners. Father, we give you praise and thanks this day. There is so much here. What a, what a rich, condensed passage of text. Who can exhaust it? Certainly not I. I don't have the speech. and Certainly not in the time that we have. But I pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit you would help us to love one another. That as a church, we would love one another. We would love you. We would love one another. And then, Lord God, we, that love would overflow and abound. That we would love all whom we come in contact with. Those who are outcasts in society, Lord God, that they would not be outcasts in our hearts. We would love them and meet their needs. She, those who... Seem to have it all, we would not be envious of them, but we would love them, realizing that if they don't have Christ, they have nothing. They are poor, wretched, blind, and lame. Help us, Father God, to love one another and to demonstrate, not just to say it, Lord. Love is a verb. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would actively care for one another. Give us that ability. It's hard to do. We always fall short, Lord God. We don't always demonstrate it. But I pray that in your sufficiency, you would fill us with your spirit, that this fruit would be born in each of us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You will? Let's go ahead and we'll stand and we'll sing another song and then we'll...